HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network. And today, A Taste of the Past is being brought to you by 360 Cookware. 360 Cookware is top-of-the-line stainless steel cookware that's made in America in the greenest cookware manufacturing facility in the country. It can be used to make all your favorite recipes, but it also gives you the option to cook using vapor technology, which creates a seal that surrounds food with intense heat, locking in vitamins, moisture, and flavor without added fat or oil or excess water. Visit the website at 360cookware.com for more information. You know, Heritage Radio Network does have um, a few very generous sponsors, and, and we're always very thankful for that. But when you log in, you may have noticed a new uh, addition to the, the home page of the website, and that is a donor page. We, like public radio, we do rely also on, on donations and sponsorship from you, our listeners, and every sponsorship is greatly appreciated. Um, there's a donate uh, button on that page, and you can designate your gift to go to a particular show or for the support of the radio network in general. And any amount of gift helps, especially in these harder times and harder getting sponsors. We, we appreciate all of your help. Today I want to give a special shout-out to a listener and friend, Betty Heilman. And, um, and I want to talk a little bit, for those of you who are listening in real time, uh, which today is December 2nd, 2010, you know that we've just finished the Thanksgiving season. Some of you may be listening a month from that date, who knows, but just to let you know that we've just finished the Thanksgiving um, holiday, and so that means we're in the full swing of holiday season here. And I, have to, I just have to make a mention of, of my Thanksgiving holiday. It was really quite interesting because... Yes, we had the American turkey, fresh killed, and it was delicious and wonderful. Also, a little invention by um, uh, my son and his um, girlfriend called, you know, you've heard of turducken, right? Well, they invented something called the squadoose, which was a goose stuffed with a squab and a, let me see, a squab and a duck all stuffed into a goose 
It was incredible. It was fun. All sous vide first and then roasted afterwards. But we also had some interesting additions. We had we had people from Texas. So, of course, we had the marshmallows on the sweet potatoes. And we had Indiana stuffing and Oregon Brussels sprouts. And we had a wonderful addition to our appetizers, and that was an Indian dish called kandvi. Judy Reddy and her husband Krishna came to join our table, and they and Judy made this wonderful dish of chickpea, rolled chickpea pasta with spicy oils and and um, cilantro and peppers, and something I think is going to be now a traditional part of my Thanksgiving. Which brings me to how traditions develop and how we adopt different foods for different holidays. Today marked, well, last night marked the beginning of the Jewish celebration Hanukkah. And today I'm very happy to have with me Gil Marks. Welcome, Gil. Thank you very much. Glad, <laughs> really good to be here. Um, and today, of course, um, is the second night of Hanukkah. And Gil is, he is an author, a rabbi, a historian, a chef, a social worker, <laughs> the list goes on. And he's become somewhat of a, a, an authority on culinary subjects in general, and especially Jewish cuisine. He, many of you may remember um, a very special book he wrote called Olive Trees and Honey, about vegetarian cooking in Jewish communities around the world. His newest book is called the Encyclopedia of Jewish Food, just released by Wiley Press, and it is a comprehensive, it's an A to Z guide to Jewish foods, recipes, and culinary traditions. And as he like he says, don't let the word encyclopedia scare you off. It is an incredible read. It has entries from 1200 BC on through the present date. It is giving a timeline of a lot of the foods, and it really is very informative. And I mean, Gil has written articles for many magazines and done appearances at um, many food venues around the country. And I like too, which is is evident in this book. I like that he never loses his sense of humor in his writing and his presentations. To give you an example, he presents lectures, and some of the lectures have wonderful titles: "Bagels from Schmear to Eternity." A history of Colant. Is Kishka named after the wrapper, or is the wrapper named after the stuffing? It's just, I love that. And you can hear that, Gil, in, in the book. It's an encyclopedia, yes. And it does, it, the layout is like an encyclopedia. You can read it like an encyclopedia. But once you start to get into the history, people will be lost in, in as I said, the timeline and learning and surprising themselves about things they thought they knew which weren't true. Right. Uh, well, the basic thing is that uh, most of the things we think about food are not true. And the what called, in Yiddish, the word is babamices, which is literally grandma's, uh, which related to babka, uh, grandma's tales, but old wives', old wives tales, tales yeah. is basically what it is. And uh, one, of the th- one of the fun things for me was to actually research things out and find the truth um, about things, that matzah was originally soft, that the original latka, since it's Hanukkah, was a cheese latka. Well, well, let's don't go there so fast, because that's what I want to get into. Being Hanukkah, of course, we think about the foods that are associated with Hanukkah, and of course, 
yeah, you can't right. have Hanukkah without latkes, right? Right. So, so that's where I wanted to talk about Hanukkah. Tell us a little bit about first where Hanukkah got its name, and and um, and then the celebration. And tell us about the history of latkes. Okay, Hanukkah is Hebrew word means dedication. Uh, and what happened was it's based upon a historical event, which is the first known uh, war uh, of, for religious freedom. And the Seleucid uh, Syrian Greeks had, uh, uh, had, were controlling the land of Israel. And on the Saturnalia, which is the, the solstice, winter solstice of right. the 25th, which is why the 20, uh, Hanukkah begins on the 25th of the month of the Hebrew month. Just the 25th is it's not a coincidence that it pops up consistently. And actually, an interesting side point is that even before this story, it was probably a minor little day anyway, because it was the last, day, traditionally last day of the olive oil pressing season. Mm-hmm. And um, Jews from around the area would bring up olive oil to the temple as, as some of the first fruits there. And, and so they probably would have a party anyway. But what happened was, if in 168 BCE, the um, the uh, Seleucid, uh, under the king Antiochus, uh, who uh, they decided on that day to desecrate the temple, and that provoked, amongst other acts, a a civil war mm-hmm. in which the Jews revolted, and three they're under the leadership of the Maccabees or right. the Hashmonaim, as they're known, and they three years later had chased the uh, Seleucids out of the country and were able to um, come into the temple to rededicate it, hence the name. Now, the interesting thing is if you look in the ancient sources, the Book of the Maccabees, there, there's no mention of what later became the oil situation. And, because what ha- and I'll explain this, is because after they chased out the, the Seleucids, they kind of seized power and became a corrupt, despotic group. They really were not nice. And their machinations with each other in 63 BCE led to Rome coming into the country, uh, which was disastrous because that, of course, led to, the, to several uh, revolts and, and the diaspora and just the death of millions of people, such destruction. And so the rabbis and the people really did not like the Hashemunim and and things. So whereas the holiday of Purim has an entire uh, tractate, entire book of the Talmud dedicated to it, Hanukkah Hanukkah is included in the tractate of Sabbath, um, because it's talking about the Sabbath candles, and after the Sabbath candles, all of a sudden it has one and a half pages, that's all, uh, to Hanukkah. And, and all of a sudden, for the first time, there's this, uh, this story appears that when the Maccabees retook the temple, they wanted to light the candelabra, which is known as the menorah. And, but this was lit every evening and ran through the night, uh, the same amount of oil each time, but enough to, to run through the longest night, which I figured was for eight days would be about three about cups three of cups. oil. About three cups. That's what I had read, too, uh, three cups and, of oil. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they were not – they only found one very small vial of olive oil that was pure, 
and which they would only last, they thought, for a couple of days, but it actually lasted eight days. And so because Hence the miracle the, of, the, of the lights yes. right in the oil. So, um, but probably from the book of the Maccabees, actually, the it was probably the eight days was probably based upon the earlier uh, um, holiday of Sukkot, which, went, mm-hmm. which, which means it runs for eight days. And since they weren't able to celebrate it that year, they kind of did a, a pseudo celebration after beginning on the 25th after they retook the temple. And but basically, Hanukkah until the 21st, 20th century America was a very, very minor holiday. Mm-hmm. Basically, all you did was at evening you lit your candelabra and you went on with your life and ate some latkes. No, not no, yet. Not even, no, no, not no. even. And not even. Okay, so tell me when when that's, did latkes come into the, the picture? That's the thing. There weren't even the first mention of any traditional food for Hanukkah only comes in the 14th century. Mm which is, you know, 1,500 years after the event. So that's quite a time span. And all of a sudden, you have two traditional food items emerge, one of which is the obvious one is fried foods, reflecting the miracle of the oil. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a little bit more obscure, and it's dairy products, but in particular cheese. Now, the reason for this is one of the books of the Apocrypha, meaning those books, those ancient Hebrew books that were not canonized and made part of the Bible, mm-hmm. so the non-biblical ancient books, was a book called Judith. It, um, it wasn't accepted. So it kind of, the actual book itself disappeared. Today there are four extant versions of it, none of which are in the original Hebrew. And so we're not totally sure which one it is. But the story survived. But nice, the story anyway. survived <laughs> somehow. And during the medieval period, uh, the Jews who did not have a copy of the actual text um, changed it. So the actual story itself is a Babylonian time period, meaning um, the, around the year 580 or something mm-hmm. like that. So about 400, uh, four, 400 four de- uh, centuries before the Hanukkah story. And then what happens is uh, the this one town outside of Jerusalem in the Judean hills is being besieged by the Babylonian army. And this uh, comely young lady in town by the name of Judith devises a plan, basically based, if you know the book of Deborah in the Bible, um, there's, a, there's an instance where the Emperor Sisera, the Assyrian Emperor Sisera, um, escapes the battle that he's losing, runs away, comes to this tent of a woman by the name of Yael, who feeds him dairy products and makes him thirsty, and then um, when, when he gets tired, she kills him. So in this story uh, of, the, of Judith, she goes there and feeds the general, uh, the Babylonian general, uh, salty cheeses. And when he gets thirsty, she gives him wine. And when he gets tipsy, she cuts his head off. <laughs> right. um, we very, see that we see that in art all the time. Yes, right? the, it's the images like, of Judith holding. Uh, yeah, that, in the mid, oh, quite so. Right. Yeah, the Renaissance um, paintings have that a lot. They really love that story. Uh, and anyway, so in honor of the cheese. That um, dairy products and cheese, in particular, became a traditional food again in the first mention in the 14th and 15th century. It's it becoming adapted, and all of a sudden, in and w- the other thing to mention is that uh, 
this the Jewish role in cuisine has never actually really been innovation. Invocationally, they do. I just saw recently the guy who invented cheese doodles was a Sephardic Jew from um, from uh, Brooklyn. So uh, technically, cheese doodle was a Jewish food, even though it didn't make the encyclopedia. Uh, but um, what happened was that uh, during the medieval period. New foods and techniques would arrive from the Muslim world, mm-hmm. usually first into Italy. So you'd have something like dumplings showing up uh, around the 11th century or uh, 1100s or so. Um, wasn't known before. Pasta, even though Italians claimed Etruscans made right. it, there's really no record of pasta until uh, actually before Marco Polo, actually, about 50 years before he was born, uh, we have the first mentions of pasta in Italy. And usually what would happen is about 50 years after these foods would show up in non-Jewish Italian sources, they would show up in Jewish Italian sources. And then about 50 to 100 years after that, they would show up in German Jewish sources. Uh, and so then, guess who laid claim? <laughs> and, well, often it was the Jews that transmitted them because right. they were the ones either through trade or in marriage between communities or the constant interaction between these communities, these dishes would come from one Jewish community to the next. And that role repeats itself over and over again. The Jews will come into a community. They'll adapt local foods to the dietary laws, to their taste, um, share their own dishes. And then when they would go to a new area, they would repeat this, and they would transmit these foods over and over again. Well, much how we find the foods today, all the international foods today, how it becomes part of the standard menu on, in restaurants in New York, whereas, you know, years past, you would have only found them on a menu someplace in Morocco. Right. You know, so. well, well, the things we take for granted, yogurt, mm-hmm. which is an ancient food that predates the Jews. But the Jews play a vital role in changing it. If you asked the average American in 1960 what yogurt was, 95% would say, I haven't the slightest idea. Right. Within right. 10 years, 95% of the Americans were eating it on a regular basis, which is an incredible, if you think about it, an incredible marketing change. And that was basically due to one Jewish family. It was, um, that, um, and, the, and the name of that that. Pro- that, that Line was became Dan Dan and yogurt, right? Who totally um, changed things. So that so the cheese. Um, you brought up cheese um, being associated with um, a, a Hanukkah food. Now, were they? Was it fried cheese? Now, you said something that I I have to I have to hear it from you. The meaning of the word latka. Yes. Okay, is, according to your is sources. Little oilies. Little oilies. Yes. Couldn't that also sort of translate into pancake? I mean, I've, I've heard it, it so much in the Ukrainian and everything. It's, yeah. it's pan, it That's, actually means pancake. Well, latka right? enters Yiddish by way of Ukrainian, by way of uh, Italian Latin. Because, again, as I said, these dishes and concepts often th- flow through Italy. So they were little oily pancakes. So <laughs> the, Actually, yeah. So the first latkes, per se, or, or Hanukkah pancakes, mm-hmm. the pre-latkes, were um, in Italy, and they were basically ricotta cheese fried in olive oil. Fried cheese, yeah. It was fried cheese latkes, which actually are delicious. Yes, they're, they are. They're sort of like little cheesecakes. Yeah, my friend Ann Mendelson makes a wonderful sour cream and uh, ricotta-type fried, well, she just, just great stuff. Right. So what happens is, is that, as you mentioned, the cheese latke originates in, and the cheese pancake originates in Italy. It then flows into the Ukraine, where uh, it takes, latke is, is, directly from the Italian Latin word for olive oil. 
but they don't have olive oil in Ukraine and Poland. Uh, in fact, they have very little oil, and mm-hmm. it's very expensive. The, the, fat, they have the primary fat. <laughs> oil, yeah, the primary oil of, Pol- of Germany and parts of Poland was poppy seed oil, which was expensive and rare. And so, the pr- how the, many seeds does it take? <laughs> it takes an <laughs> awful lot. Of uh, but you know, think of like sesame seed oil is the same thing. You just keep pounding until yeah. you have enough. And so, basically, the predominant frying element particularly in the winter when Hanukkah is falling, is going to be uh, a schmaltz, which is rendered chicken fat. Mm-hmm. And in the Jewish dietary laws, you cannot fry cheese in, you can't mix you can't meat mix and milk. With the dairy. So you can't, yeah. you can't fry cheese pancakes in schmaltz. And also at that time, in, in those northern climates, soft cheese is rarer and more expensive. So initially, they shifted to two types of of alternate latkes. They continued cheese latkes among certain people, mm-hmm. but the primary latkes for the next several hundred years were two types. One was buckwheat, which had recently mm-hmm. arrived there. from The Tartars and Mongols had brought it from Siberia, and uh, basically Bellinis. And then uh, the other one was like rye bread. They would take the dough and rye bread dough and kind of make it a little thinner and fry that. And, fry that. and, they, and, ve- and what about and well vegetable? Those were fritters, but I mean, a lot of vegetable. No, you didn't really are... have any of those. First of all, they didn't eat a lot of vegetables well, in that area. Unfortunately, of course, in culinary history, we know that it wasn't a potato locket way back then because potatoes were a new world food and and didn't go to Europe until what like seventeen hundred. Well, they come very late. The sweet potato came back with Columbus. The white potato what, did not come until much later. Yeah. And when it does show up, it's the, the Europeans think it's poisonous at best. And it took an act of British Parliament to allow it to be used as animal food. And it's only in the wake of the French uh, Revolution, when you have severe famine in France, that the French begin eating potatoes on a, uh, on a, as part of their diet. And uh, so you're talking relatively late. You're, you're talking at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th right. century already. So when do you, in, through your research, when did you sort of figure the first... Um, that the lockers began to make potato pancakes okay. came into being. That, that's that's almost easy to, to show. Because <laughs> okay. what happens is when the French start doing it, the Germans pick it up, but not the upper class. The upper class and even many middle class Germans thought it was poor man's food and wouldn't touch a potato. Mm-hmm. But the the masses of Germany um, p- began doing it, and they make the first potato pancakes that we know of. Uh, it actually showed in Germany. And, but the Eastern Europeans still won't touch it until in the 1840s, the two severe years of famine in Poland and Ukraine, and all of a sudden they start eating potatoes. Mm. And it's that, so we know that the potato latka, the iconic uh, Hanukkah food, um, only at, begins relative very late in Jewish history, which is the 1840s. And, that re- and the, European, the European Jews really were the first to adapt it to and, and make it part of their celebration? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it becomes, I mean, first of all, it's cheap. It's something, it, it, this, is a, this is still when food was seasonal. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't go to the supermarket and get apples and oranges and, and stuff that we take for granted today. Um, and the basic thing you had was store, foods that kept. Which Cabbage was, and potatoes. <laughs> and apples. And apples, right. Which led to they, applesauce uh-huh. being one of the predominant uh uh, accompaniments, right. condiments to it. So again, you, many traditional uh, holiday foods are based upon seasonal 
available and available items. It's interesting because we're trying to get back to that seasonal eating today, you know, going back to right. the, the old days. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the special foods of Hanukkah when we come back after a short break. Stay tuned. A Taste of the Past, and we're talking about traditional Hanukkah foods with Gil Marks, the author of the Encyclopedia of Jewish Food. And Gil, you were talking about how so many things came to be tradition because they were seasonal, right. given the, like, the things in the cellar. You go to the cellar to see what you can make, and you got some apples, you got some potatoes, right? right? Um, it, but what are some of the other um, traditional Hanukkah foods? Right, well... And, and uh, seasonal, I guess, that would be too. Another, right? Yeah, another aspect that came along later after the... The, the fried foods and cheese was meat foods because uh, uh, often feasting involved meat. And the, an interesting aspect of history is that animals are relatively cheap to raise during the summer and early fall when there's plenty of free grass for them to graze on and seeds for them to eat. During the winter, you actually have to pay your own money to provide feed for them. Mm. So any animal that wasn't necessary for the procreation of that group was done away with um, just for the eaten. winter, yeah. which was meant just before Hanukkah. So in Western and Central Europe, the, um, a common uh, feast item was the goose, roast goose. And you would shep, uh, you would slaughter uh, the uh, meaning any males, particularly because most males, except for you, only needed one or so, uh, were done away with, and any female passing its uh, child the uh, mm-hmm. egg laying egg or child bearing egg, so that the uh, you you had this surplus of meat all of a sudden that meant it was available and it was cheaper, and they were also. At that point, take the duck fat and render it down and make the schmaltz, and that that would provide them with enough uh, frying component, mm-hmm. which is vital for, to survive the winter. Right. And but in Eastern Europe, they still had geese, but much less of them. But what, instead, it was more of a cow society. And so there, you got rid of the, all of these unnecessary cattle before just before Hanukkah time. So there was this surplus of meat. But even at that point, it was still 
relatively expensive, and they would eat the cheaper cuts, usually most people, which we would say, like, instead of living high on the hog or low on the hog, it would be low on the cow, <laughs> right. and because that's the tougher spots on lower things, and that was the brisket, brisket. And stuff. And an interesting thing is that we, we talked about the transmission and transferal of foods right. is that particularly in America where the community generally had more wealth and more access to meat, brisket became more you know, a very important kind of food in amongst the American thing. But uh, culture is not static. And food is not static right. either, and it's constantly changing. So Americans would adapt it. They, they would might put onion soup mix in it, uh, cranberry. That relish. was that was a stand. The onion soup brisket was a very standard recipe throughout the United States. Cranberry yeah. relish when who started that? Pineapple. Lipton or or some or some housewife? I think yeah, but yeah. probably like that. Yeah, and then down in um, in Georgia, they would use Coca Cola brisket. Mm. So it's very interesting this adaptation. Uh, and uh, so that's another aspect of the seasonal aspect of how that became uh, that, and how it changes as well. When you have more wealth in America, it becomes more prominent. Right. And, and then the, the, the changes and, and stuff. Well, tongue was uh, – preparation of tongue, was that also not um, a, a standard – Hanukkah dish or, or no? That was a, that was any time dish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be like a celebration dish, maybe a Sabbath, or or particularly if there's a wedding or something like that, then mm-hmm. you would you would do it. But oh, they love tongue. Well, now we haven't talked about something else, and that's the jelly donut. Ah, uh, the final one. Now that's an interesting one that has actually an interesting political um, maneuvering behind it. Because basically the, the Germans, somebody in Germany created the first jelly donut and the concepts uh, spread to Poland where the Poles call it ponchiks, which is ponchiks, like rose, right. rosebud. Yeah. And actually a good part of the Australian Jewish community came from Poland and many of them still refer to jelly donuts as ponchiks. I, it even transferred to, to my family. It was not Jewish, but from Poland. And the, right. They, they called them punches. Well, the, yeah. Jew, the Jews picked it up from the non-Jews in Poland. The Poles basically would make, um, before Lent, had to get rid of all you know various foods they couldn't eat. So they mm-hmm. would have make punchiks, which used up the jelly and the and some of the sugars and breads and, and and butters and stuff like that. So they made jelly donuts, and, and the Jews kind of picked it up. Some, not all of them. It was a minor custom among certain areas of Poland where they would make, and they filled it either with lekvar, which is prune jam, or uh, rose rose petal um, jelly. Hmm. Uh, which is the cheapest thing that they grew, that could grow in those areas. And basically what happened is in modern Israel, in the beginning of the 20th century, the labor union, known as the Hisadrut, was interested in getting employment for their members. And they figured the potato latke or any kind of latke, anybody can make at home. There's no work, you know, no outside work needed. Now, a jelly donut, first of all, intimidates many people. Mm-hmm. I make jelly donuts every year, but not everybody. But not everybody's wants to not do everybody's that. an as accomplished chef as you. <laughs> uh, but any, if you know what you're doing, you can actually do it. But the so what they they thought, well, you know, for a week, the week before and the week during, uh, we could provide not just people making it, people transporting it, people selling it. There's a lot of jobs involved, and 
so they kind of push that. And so in Israel, the predominant Hanukkah food is the jelly donut, and latkes are kind of minor, and some people don't even make them anymore. And actually, to the point, it's almost like you know how Christmas begins earlier and earlier <laughs> in America, and you know, like after Thanksgiving, you can't. You, all of New York is f- already filled with this stuff. Well, in Israel, the jelly donut season gets earlier and earlier, so sometimes <laughs> a, a month or two before, they're already selling the je- the sufganiyot, the jelly donuts, sufganiyot, right? and uh, and it's. And now it's not just jelly donuts, of course. They they do uh, dulce de leche, the caramelized fillings, all kind of exotic and interesting fillings go into it. So when I do it, I make a pastry cream, and je- and then we take jelly. So we have both of those at the annual uh, Mark's uh, Family Sufganiyo uh, Hanukkah party. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, what um, anything else? I, some things that came up... Um, in whether your book or one of the other books, uh, Joan Nathan certainly she talks you know a, a lot about um, the Jewish holiday foods too. Um, uh, honey puffs are, are those are those for Hanukkah or? Uh, well, those, that's you, you think Teglach is actually or Lukmanis. What Lukmanis is a, is the Greek form of donut. So that would just be their version of the... Right. So each of the different Jewish communities... See, there's not... Many Americans think of Jewish food as just European or Eastern European. Mm -hmm. There's actually a mosaic of Jewish communities that grew up around the world. There's three separate Indian Jewish communities, each developing their own food and culture. Uh, Ethiopia, uh, Yemen, all kinds of of Jewish communities. And and each of them developed their own uh, fried foods for Hanukkah, and usually there's at least one, if not several, tr- um, sweet um, treats. And so there's various forms of, like the, they're sort of like primitive donuts, rudimentary donuts, mm-hmm. we call them that way, um, in which... Or the, the donut holes, just those. <laughs> basically, but they also, the key thing that changes the early fried uh, doughs into donuts is the addition of egg yolk. Because mm-hmm. the egg yolk makes a firmer batter, and it also um, helps the dough to resist the absorption of oil. So you get a less oily treat, for better treat, and that transforms it. Uh, so these early Lukmanios, uh, although many add the egg yolks now, in those days they didn't. Uh, and the, the actual authentic ones do not have egg yolks in them. And they're little fly, they're uh, looser dough, so you just drop them in. They're very easy to make, and I make them from time to time too huh. uh, because they're delicious. Oh, interesting. Nothing, nothing beats a, a hot a donut right out of the oil. Well, you know, I have learned a lot of new things today, and I I really recommend this book to people. It's it's called the Encyclopedia of Jewish Cooking. It ha- it starts out with a wonderful timeline. I have to say that I, I thank you for including that in the beginning of the book, but it is as much a resource as it is a cookbook too, because you have you have a lot like three hundred recipes in there. It, it's you? a cookbook, three hundred recipes, but it's. It's also a narrative of the Jewish people because food carries culture and history. Absolutely. And each of the little, there's all kinds of entries, everything from bagels and rugelach and common foods that you know of, and more obscure things. There's holiday foods like afikoman, what it really mm-hmm. means for the Passover Seder and things. And so together, it tells the story of the Jewish people for the past uh, three millennium. 
So that's true. So culinary history is is all things wrapped into one. And I thank you so much for sharing with us. It was uh, very interesting. I thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. I had a great time. Well, and I thank you, our listeners. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host. And I'd like to thank our executive producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. 